Uh, We've just been studying the last two weeks how Jesus was defending the disciples to the Pharisees, these legalistic rule keepers uh, who really make up their own rules and make traditions of men uh, rather than keeping the commandments of God and keeping the scripture. And they would accuse the disciples of a few different things, not keeping the Sabbath by plucking grain and gleaning grain on the Sabbath day and, uh, and then accusing Jesus of um, uh, <clears throat> healing on the Sabbath, that that was some sort of a Sabbath law breaking. Uh, they also accused the disciples of not fasting and why aren't they fasting? Why aren't they doing these religious things that we should be doing? And, and, uh, and Jesus really was speaking to their heart and hitting home to them that, um, you know, there's, so much more than rules when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to following him. He's the source of life and he comes to bring grace and there's life in grace. Grace truly changes everything. And uh, it was after this last little conflict that he had with them. And I taught on it two weeks ago. Fred taught on it last week, the healing of the, uh, the man with the withered hand in the synagogue and on the Sabbath day. And at this point, the Pharisees are quite fed up with Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are, they're already done with him. And we're only in chapter three at this point, you know, and uh, we see there in verse six that then the Pharisees went out, they went out of the synagogue and immediately plotted with the Herodians against them, how they might destroy him. And so, uh, you know, Jesus's words to them regarding the Sabbath, um, there was just a bit much, you know, he pushed a button in their hearts. And so immediately, very quickly, they went out and they partnered with this group called the Herodians, which were a group of Jews that were Greek influenced. They were Greek speaking. They kind of, uh, they were bringing about this, um, the Greek lifestyle, but they were also loyal to Herod and they were at conflict normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And yet, you know, they both hated Jesus. So they had that in common. You know, it's the classic, the enemy of my enemy is my best friend, you know, and, uh, and these guys get together and they plan and they counsel together and they try to plot and scheme how they can destroy him. And the word destroy speaks of let's, let's make him perish. Let's make him get lost. How can we get him to disappear? In verse seven, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, verse eight, and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing came to him. And so Jesus, you know, somehow he knew that this scheme was happening against him. He decided to just kind of back out. We're going to see him do that a couple times in the gospel. Nazareth was a place where he did that. They were going to get him and throw him off a cliff. And he was, you know, somehow he knew how to kind of sink back into a crowd and like, you know, get lost in that sense of it. And, uh, and so he withdrew that destruction against him. And he went just a couple hundred yards really to the seashore where this great multitude, uh, a great multitude speaks of a great crowd. And I always love this word that's also used. Maybe your Bible says it. Uh, It's the word throng. A great throng followed him, which is a large, densely packed crowd of people 
or animals. Okay, so think of your herds and when they're all packed together going through a small space, uh, that would be a throng. And Webster's Dictionary defines it as a pressing increase of activity. And so just lots of people packed tightly together. This isn't necessarily the first time we've seen this. This has happened in some houses that Jesus has been in. Um, But uh, here we have a little bit more explanation as to um, why it's so many. Because we have people from Judea. And I don't know if you have a map in the back of your Bible, but... Um, Fred and Joe and I were looking at an Israel uh, map of Palestine from back in the day. And you would see that at the south of Israel is Judea and Jerusalem is within Judea. And so we have there from Judea and uh, verse eight says uh, Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And then we have these, uh, this location called Idumea and beyond the Jordan. So that's to the east. The Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. So if you went beyond that, you're really in some, today is very deserty over there. You're getting into Jordan and Jesus's fame had spread over there. And these people were traveling from Southern Israel, east of Israel, up to the Northern part, which is where Galilee is. Um, We also see those from Tyre and Sidon. And if you look at your map, if you've got one, that's north. That's up into Syria, actually. And uh, you're up by Damascus. Again, that phrase used in verse 8, a great multitude. And uh, what would be causing this great multitude to come? I mean, what's the big deal? What's all the hubbub, bub, you know? And, uh, you know, we've all been to various uh, events where... Um, there's this type of throng. There's these types of multitudes. Uh, Lindsay and I went for our anniversary to uh, go uh, listen to Garth Brooks in Boise. And uh, we talked to people and, you know, people are coming from all over to come and, and hear him. You know, a guy I listened to growing up and as a child and um, talk about a throng of people. I mean, these lines are just weaving and waving and woving or whatever, you know, and you're just in these lines and there's just so many people and they get in and they're just packed, uh, in this, uh, giant stadium. It was in Boise and, uh, uh, a tight crowd. And, uh, if you look at even many religious processions, even today you go to Israel and many of the different, um, sects of religion will be, going to these various holy sites, whether there's Muslims over there that might go to Muslim holy sites. In, uh, in India, the Hindis, they will go, and there's these giant throngs pressing about. Large group of people. And, uh, but we see why, why they were doing this. It was because they heard how many things he was doing. No wonder the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They were hearing about all of this popularity that Jesus was gaining and they were losing their power. It's interesting when you go to Nepal today where we go once a year, um, if you become a Christian, if you're Nepali and you're either Buddhist or Hindu, if you become a Christian and you get baptized, you have a two week life expectancy. Like they're going to track you down and they're going to kill you. And we have close relationships of people who've been martyred over in, um, over in Nepal and their parents and their families have been martyred as they've come to faith in Christ. But you know, who's doing the killing the monks, 
And, and we would all say, oh, but aren't the monks the peaceful people? I mean, that seems to be who, and that's, that's people who have no idea what Buddhists really truly believe in. And really that's often the case. People don't know what people believe in. And so you just kind of, it seems spiritual and it seems like something that you would latch on to. Uh, but really it's, it's a very violent religion and, uh, and they practice the killing of anyone who would convert over there. And, uh, and one of the reasons is because these monks get all kinds of money from these villages and they get the firstborn of every house to come and be part of their monasteries. And the monks actually will live in wealth, uh, with the finest of clothes and the best of the phones and the devices and vehicles, and they'll travel all around the world and then they'll come back uh, to these villages where people are dying of all kinds of disease and famine and um, you know, they're living like they're in the 1700s or earlier, you know, and, um, and when they don't have the fear of the people, they lose control. And so they start murdering or martyring them. And, uh, that's really what is even happening in this place. The Pharisees are beginning to lose their grip on the people because Jesus obviously is bringing light and life. And it's interesting how the fascinating will always draw a crowd, <laughs> And you guys know better than anybody, the, the solar eclipse, you know, and the symbiosis. It's interesting, uh, two years ago I was in Nepal and I was on a 10 hour bus ride and it's the worst bus ride you'll ever be on in your life. It's like a four wheel drive bus. It's all jacked up. I think I mentioned last week this, that, that, you know, our leaf spring fell off, our leaf spring bundle fell off our bus this year and the year before we blew a tire and you're packed in and people are throwing up and it's just like the worst thing. And uh, I was talking to somebody and I thought this lady in front of me was a Nepali gal. And as I'm visiting with a friend, I'm talking about um, Primeville. And all of a sudden this girl turns around in the bus seat and goes, you're from Primeville? <laughs> and I was like, whoa, um, yeah, you know where Primeville is? What do you? And she said, oh yeah, I was over um, there for the symbiosis gathering during the eclipse. And she actually was diverted through Polina here and uh, up to the, the prairie. So talk about a small world, huh? And we actually have to be very careful. I actually, I mean, you just really, you get quiet because it's illegal to share Christ there. And so it's really difficult around Westerners and Americans and Europeans because they get very aggressive if you try to convert people to Jesus. They think you're trying to, to steal their way of life. And um, really, we're trying to bring Jesus to this beautiful culture that they do have. But um, so anyways, uh, we do know that uh, the symbiosis the eclipse, they draw a crowd. I watched the eclipse on top of Barnes Butte in Prineville, which is right behind my house. And it's funny, you know, no one's usually up there. And then you go up there during the eclipse and it's a ton of people. The crowd uh, was there because the fascinating always draw a crowd. And Jesus was frankly, very fascinating. He was a fascinating guy. So he told his disciples that a small boat, verse nine, should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. So, so far the disciples consisted of Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi, just a few disciples. But in just a little bit, he's going to have selected all of the 12 that we know. Uh, it's also um, fascinating to me in this verse that so many people were around Jesus that he had to have like a safe escape route, you know, um, and he needed like, just keep a boat right there. Cause I'm up against the shoreline and people are pressing against me. I'm going to have to jump in this boat just so I don't get, um, crushed and afflicted 
uh, give me some space. And if you're an introvert, um, you know, even Jesus needed a little bit of space every now and then. Just let me breathe, okay? Not me, I'm a hugger. I'm like, bring it in. Let's just all get, the closer the better, right? Um, but verse 10 says, for, there's a reason they were all crowding together, for he'd healed many. So that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And if you guys can kind of dive into this verse with me, like really let yourself feel what's going on here. Like people are hurting. (laughs) People have pain. People have physical afflictions. Many of you, you know, I mean, think of yours. But also think of others. Think of the stuff we know that people go through. The diseases, the torments. And the language afflictions here literally speaks of a flogging with a whip and a scourging and the afflictions that people would have. And as many just knew, if I can just get close to him and hold on to him and touch him, I just know I'll be healed. And there was hope in Jesus. People would come just hoping I could just touch him. And, and I love that story of the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. And she would be one that would push through the crowd. And she's just like, if I can just, just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch that, then I will be healed. And do you guys know what happened? She touched it. And Jesus, who's in the midst of all these people, he said, Hey, who touched me? I felt power go forth from me. And the disciple says, you got all this throng about you. And you're wondering who touched you. He says, no, I felt power go forth uh, from me. And for me, that's one of the things I always pray when I'm praying for healing for people. I just pray, Lord, just we're like this woman right now that's just touching you. You just believe that if, if you would just, uh, in fact, the language for touch is to start a fire is what it speaks of. It's this, you know, I don't know, some sort of connection there. And uh, Lord, I just, Lord, bring hope and life and light to us. Let your power come to us so that we can be healed. Um, one of my favorite books is Ben-Hur. And I, I'm actually related uh, to, well, my great-great-grandfather was Lou Wallace's stable boy in the Civil War. And Lou Wallace would go on to be the governor of New Mexico, strike a deal with Billy the Kid, trying to get Billy the Kid set free. And, uh, and later on, he would become the um, ambassador to uh, Turkey, Uh, Jordan, rather, to Jordan. And while he was in Jordan, he began to be interested in this Jesus guy. And so he started going over to Israel. And um, he was writing about what would it be like to have been alive when Jesus was on the earth and to kind of be an outsider and not really know who this guy was. You know, he's doing all this stuff and all these people are talking about him. and, And the interesting thing is the more that Lou Wallace began to study what Jesus was doing and what these people were experiencing, he ended up becoming a Christian as he wrote the book. And so it's called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And one of the things that is uh, such a heartwarming part of the story, and if you watch the movie, the movie's excellent. All the movies are really good that have been made about it. But Charles and Heston, man, he, he does a great job. Uh, but I began to weep in the movie because there's a scene where... Uh, Judah Ben-Hur's mom and sister have contracted leprosy and they're living in a leper colony. And he knows that if he can just go get them out of this pit that the lepers are living in 
and get them up to Bethany where Jesus is riding on a donkey. He's coming through. If he can just get them there, he knows they'll be healed. And so everything within him is just rushing and running and trying to get his family. Just come on, we've got to hurry. He's coming and they're lepers, you know, they've had body parts falling off and they're just in pain. And he's like, we just got to get there. Everything and all the hope within him is if we can just touch him, if he just look at us, he'd be healed. And it's just one of the most moving parts of the story. So maybe you're not even a reader. This might be the book that would get you on the path. It's so great, but it's interesting too. And I don't mean to just talk about Nepal all the time, but, um, when we travel to Nepal, we will go to villages and this is in parts of the villages where people have begun to hear about Jesus. And they know that when the Christians come and they pray for you in the name of Jesus, you're actually going to get healed. And so they will come and they will ask you, come to my home, pray for my mother, pray for my sister, pray. And we'll go and we'll pray for these people. And our first year there, um, one of our teams was, uh, we had, we had to break up into groups. One of our groups was asked to come into a home where there was a blind lady and we, they prayed for her and nothing really seemed to happen. And they left. And the next year when we came, they were in this uh, same village and they began to hear uh, shouting at them. And as they turned across the street was this woman who was once blind. And she recognized the voice of one of our Prineville loudmouths that's loud enough to be recognized. And she ran over and she said, you came and you prayed for me that I would be healed. And I, and I can see now I'm healed. And now she's a part of the church in that village. And, uh, the next year we went and I actually got to meet her and she is just in love with Jesus and she's living for Jesus. And so, um, people just know Jesus heals. It, it, it draws them to him. In verse 11 and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So it's really interesting, you know, that uh, these individuals would open up their mouths and a voice that is not their own would come out. And, and yet they said they seem to be saying something that's true and right and like kind of helpful even. So what's the big deal? Why is Jesus sternly commanding them not to say? I mean, isn't any advertisement good advertisement? You know, Jesus didn't need Satan's help with public relations, right? He could take care of that on his own. The Pharisees would call Jesus the prince of demons in just a few verses and that he would be casting out demons. So that would have maybe perhaps made Jesus guilty by association. The demons could also be making a power play here by taking some authority into these claims and almost like, you know, like a shady band manager that's trying to like exploit a band or something like that um, by publicity uh, when really there's hidden agenda there. But I think one of the greatest things of why Jesus would tell the demons to be quiet was because if people didn't really know what the mission of the son of God was, that he was coming to actually die. He was coming to sacrifice his life for the sins of the world. He was actually coming to call people to actually live lives of sacrifice as well. Then they would probably make their own conclusions about who this son of God was. 
And it would actually be detrimental and thrust Jesus into that type of ministry rather than the ministry of salvation that he came for. Moving on, verse 13, we see Jesus picks his team. It says, he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Uh, Luke's gospel says that Jesus went to the mountains to pray, and he prayed all night before making this big decision to pick these disciples. So I'm going I'm to level with you. I've never prayed all night long. Okay, so that's just shows what a man I am and how I love my sleep, right? Um, but Jesus is a great example, man. We got big stuff going on. How desperate are we? Are we fasting? Are we praying? And in this case, he's fasting from uh, sleep. But something beautiful about this phrase, this phrase in verse 13, about being a disciple of Jesus, there's three things I want you to note. Number one, he called them to himself. That's something that Jesus does is it's very personal. Come here, (laughs) come here. He's calling all disciples to himself. Notice there, it says that he himself wanted them. So he wanted them. He's calling them to come and I want you. And so what did they do? Well, they had their role. They came to him. So we see kind of like the sovereign aspect of salvation and the calling of God that God wants, God calls, uh, wants us to be with him. And then their aspect was, so they did it. They came. And verse 14 says, then he appointed 12. And I love this. This is what a disciple is. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Two things there. Now, first of all, it's interesting that he appointed 12. It's kind of an interesting number, wouldn't you say? There were 12 tribes and there's 12 disciples. And we're studying the book of Revelation right now on Sundays. And it's interesting. There's 24 elders around the throne of heaven. And I'm studying um, some good explanations of who those are is that it's the church made up of Jews that have been born again of the tribes and also uh, representation from the 12 disciples um, kind of as representations of the church, but there's some different ways to understand that. But an interesting number, uh, I just wrote in my notes here, I wrote, Lindsay and I were contemplating how so many people can be unfaithful within the church who say they want to be disciples, but in reality, they do not. And Lindsay and I were just talking about how it can be a headache to facilitate discipleship opportunities for those who are not really all in. And so part of this, just this week's discussion of, you know, man, what are home groups going to look like this year? What are core groups going to look like this year? You know, you got people coming in off the street. They're like, do you have a women's Bible study? Do you have a men's? There's like all these different, do you have this? And in my experience, oh yeah, let's do that. We're going to start a women's Bible study. And that very person who wanted it doesn't even come, you know, and this and that, you know, it's just ministry can be a lot like that. And we began to laugh and I go, maybe this is just why Jesus was like 12. <laughs> you know, it's like too many events to try to plan that nobody wants to come to. We're just going to come down to 12 here. I think probably his church would have been the size of planet. No, I'm teasing, but, but okay. Number one, he desired that the 12 be with him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be with him. 
To be a follower of Jesus means to be with him. It's to be used. And you know, there's no substitute for being with Jesus. There's no substitute for time in the word, time in prayer, time of worship, time of waiting on him, time of just being quiet, time of talking to him and hearing from him. There's no substitute. And many people who call themselves Christians want to try to um, supplement with something else. You know, well, maybe if I just really, you know, look good this week, you know, it'll kind of look like I've been with Jesus, you know, or something like that. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's nothing externally that we can just kind of muster up to bring about what this alone will accomplish. Just being with him. In Acts chapter four, verse 13, the disciples, Peter and John had been witnessing to the chief priests and they saw how bold and brave Peter and John were for the gospel. And it says, and they realized those guys have been with Jesus. So what is it that sets us apart from the rest of religion? Hey, we, we've been with Jesus. Like we've known him to be Lord, to be savior, to be the one who forgives our sins. And then he gives us a great task. And we'll talk about the task in just a second. I also want to just make a note that one of the greatest, most effective weapons against sin. So if you're battling sin in your life, it is also being with Jesus because when you are with Jesus and you behold his glory and his beauty, you realize that he is so much better than whatever junk this stuff is. (laughs) He is so much better. He is so much worthy. He's worth obedience. He's worth our life. And as you spend time with Jesus, you'll begin to watch your desire for sin to fade away. The second thing that he did was he wanted them to, uh, he wanted to send them out to preach. And so even for you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And part of the role that God has given you is to go out into this world and just open up your mouth and tell people about Jesus. Tell people what he has done. Verse 15 says, and that they would have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And so they had this great power to heal and to uh, validate the gospel through these miracles. Now, we're going to just go through the list of these 12 guys. And studies show that these guys were in their late teens. Okay? So it's kind of interesting who the Lord uses in powerful ways sometimes. Don't worry, Lucas, you still have a couple years. Okay, but um, uh, these guys were probably, for the most part, in their late teens. And so we have verse 16. We have Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. Uh, Simon, his name means uh, rock. Or I'm sorry, Simon means pebble. But Jesus would rename him rock or the rock, right? So, uh, and, and if you know Simon's life, before the resurrection of Jesus and before he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, he was more of a pebble. Now, either he was just weak or he was like something you get in your shoe that was just annoying. I mean, Peter, I like to call him old foot in the mouth, Peter, you know, because he would say stuff that was dumb and he'd always get, you know, corrected and all of that kind of stuff. But he was also, he was an amazing guy. Of course, Jesus saw his great potential. So he would call him rock and he would say in Matthew 16 on this rock, I will build my church. 
Then we have in verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. So we know them as James and John, the son of Zebedee, to whom he gave the name Bo... I don't know if I'm saying this right. I'm just sounding it out. Boanerges. That's <laughs> probably not how you say it. Boanerges, Boanerges, and it means sons of thunder. And these are the guys that were mending their nets as Jesus was walking along the seashore and he called them. And I always love that people have said that Peter and his brother Andrew were fishermen and they became fishers of men. And John and James were menders of nets and they would become menders of men. We talked about that weeks ago. But uh, notice that he calls them the sons of thunder. Um, These guys apparently were quite boisterous. And it's interesting because later on, John, when you read the gospel and when you read the epistles and when you read Revelation, to me, he seems like kind of a sweet guy, you know? Uh, In fact, in the gospel, it says, he says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Does that sound like a boisterous guy? I mean, maybe, maybe he was bragging about it, you know, uh, you know, but he's just a loving guy. He's the guy that was leaning against Jesus at the last supper, you know? So I think there was some sort of a transformation, uh, in John over those times, but he's one of the guys with his brother that when the people wouldn't listen to their preaching, they asked Jesus, Hey, should we go ahead and call down fire from heaven to just incinerate their rear ends? And Jesus is like, whoa, you don't even know what you're saying. Like, calm down, you know? And uh, so you get a little bit about why would they be called the sons of thunder? That's in Luke 9 that, that that's spoken of. Um, Peter, James, John, and sometimes Andrew were often within the inner circle of Jesus's discipleship. They were kind of his core group within his group, you know? Um, they would go up on the mountain with him during the, the transfiguration. They would go a little bit farther in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they would go into the home with him to heal uh, at times. And so um, these, these were kind of like the inner closer group. There was no favoritism there. It's just often how uh, discipleship can work is there's, we have limited resources, limited time, and there's guys that tend to be, you know, gifted in certain areas and they're useful in those ways. And so Jesus is even an example of um, kind of a core group within a group. We have Andrew, verse 18. Um, Andrew has a, an interesting story of him being called a disciple. You read about it, Matthew chapter four. He was one of the first to be called. And uh, Philip is a disciple. Philip's name is often mentioned with Andrew and Peter uh, because they are from the same uh, hometown. Bartholomew, it's a great name if anyone's going to be expecting a baby. It's just like, oh, this is our child Bartholomew, <laughs> you know, and just keep, keep him homeschooled. You know, it's not a great middle school name to have, um, but uh, not much is mentioned of Bartholomew in the scripture. He's just listed with the twelve. It's okay to be one of the lesser known disciples. He still was a disciple. He's just one of the lesser known. In fact, the guys that God uses in really incredible ways are the guys that are serving in obscurity and you'll never know much about them. Uh, We do know, and we'll study later on in the gospel, every one of these guys would be martyred a horrific death for the name of Christ, except for John. Matthew is listed here. He's also known as Levi. It was his name before Jesus. What did he used to do? What was his job? He was a tax collector or a publican, and he was called to be a disciple in chapter two. 
We have Thomas. Thomas is famous for being the doubter. He's also known as the twin. Not really sure what. Maybe he really was a twin or he looked like somebody else. Maybe he looked just like Jesus, you know. Uh, but they called him the twin. And um, it's interesting. Uh, when Lazarus was being raised from the dead, uh, Thomas says to the fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting statement. And uh, that's why they were like, look, <laughs> you're just going to... Hold on, just stand back there a little bit. Can't be in the core group because you're saying weird stuff, you know. <laughs> uh, although James and John were there, they called the fire down. They wanted to do that. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. It's interesting, Levi is also known as the son of Alphaeus. Um, <clears throat> Thaddeus, also a great name for your, your upcoming child. Thaddeus is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, and he's not in Luke's list, yet James, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, Judas uh, is. And so Thaddeus may also just be the name of Judas there. Simon the Canaanite. Canaanite doesn't speak of his nationality, but Canaanite in this case, is the language means he was the zealot. So he was someone that was all about the cause of Israel. Let's get the Romans out. Uh, the language of the Canaanite there means actually it speaks of a dagger, and uh, he probably was involved in some of the famous battles of the zealots against the Romans. Um, and, uh, and the interesting thing about this motley crew that we see coming along and walking with Jesus and being with Jesus is that you have a tax collector for the Romans against the Jews, a total traitor to the Jewish people. And then you have a zealot who basically would just love nothing more than to kill a tax collector who is doing something like that. And here we have them coming together to be on the same team for Jesus. And it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall in the room the first time they all got together, you know, and in comes the zealot, you know, the dagger, you know, and there's the, like, former tax collector, you know, sitting over there. And yet you never really hear of any conflict. They seem to make it work um, for that case. Um, in verse 19, 19 uh, Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. The betraying, Luke says he's a traitor. And it means he handed him over. And they went into a house. They went into a house. And then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. It's interesting. Uh, I found this uh, little letter. Of course, it's pretend. But it was, um, it's supposed to be kind of like a job reference or recommendation letter for Jesus when he's going out to pick his 12 disciples. And so uh, here's the memo. It's a memo to Jesus, the son of Joseph, woodcrafter, carpenter shop. Uh, the address is the carpenter shop in Nazareth. And it is from uh, Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem. And it says this. Dear sir, thank you for submitting, for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education, and vocational aptitude 
for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score in the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultant. And so it's just interesting. You know, we often look at something a whole lot different than what Jesus looks at. It's the story of David when he was picked to be the king, you know. Uh, He was the runt, you know, he was the little guy, not the guy you would have picked to be king. Of course, he wasn't the oldest brother. And what does the scripture say there in 1 Samuel that, you know, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. So I love this list of the disciples and there's more stories of them. I didn't get into all of it um, because we're going to go through the gospel. We're going to learn more about these guys and kind of pick up their personality as we go along. But, um, but that is encouraging, you know, that the Lord does pick the motley crew. And when you read first Corinthians chapter one, it's actually second Corinthians chapter one, you know, where we see, uh, no, it's first Corinthians chapter one, the, the ones that God uses. Um, it's not the strong, it's not the powerful, it's not the smart, you know, it's not that God doesn't use them. It's that he, he chooses to use oftentimes the foolish base things of the world to put to shame the strong and the wise and the mighty so that he'll get all the glory. And we see him doing that with this group of guys here. And so, um, and so as we go home this afternoon, uh, this evening, uh, let's remember this calling that was put out to these men and, and those specific things that Jesus himself wanted them. And you know what? Jesus himself wants you today too. He wants you and he's shown pretty strongly how bad he wants you, that he gave his own life for you. Not only he wanted them, but they came to him. So would you meet him halfway? Would you go and run to him as he's run to you? He desires that you would be with him. And then he's got a mission for you. He wants to send you out to preach, to preach. And so if you'll uh, set your things aside, we'll go ahead and...